So let's, let's go to the, the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day and for your many blessings. It is so good of you to let us come together to worship you. Father, I pray that our worship has been authentic and that it has been a sweet smell in your nostrils. I pray that it has gone up as, as smoke in your temple, that our prayers have just filled your holy place, Lord, and that you, you look upon us with mercy and with a smile. Make your face to shine on us today, Lord. Father, grant us humility to hear your word. Let it be seed for the sower. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So over the last several weeks, uh, we have been talking about things that are yet to come. Stuff that hasn't happened yet, uh, our eternity or the afterlife, you might hear it's referred to. And I confess that I've taken us on this road um, so that I can put before you still other things. But in order to do that, in order to bring those things to you, in order for you to receive them and process the truths that I'm going to attempt to unpack for you over the, the next several weeks, uh, I felt it was necessary for me to lay some foundation work. And um, that's what I've been trying to do over the last three months or so. You know, we, we don't all have to be on the exact same page on some of these truths, but it is important that we are at least reading the same chapter, we're at least in the same chapter, and, and we certainly must be in the same book. Um, well, while we may have differences on the non-essential things, on the essential things, we must have unity. We have to be united on, on these things, uh, the essential things. And to that end, we've spent the last several weeks talking about things that are to come, heaven, you know, our blessed hope. Um, it is, uh, and all the things that, that are, are coming after, you know, after this age, uh, and, and also the, the single alternative to heaven, which is hell, if you all remember that discussion. We believe that these are very real places, and that the scriptures are to be believed when speaking about those things. It's not an allegory, it's not just apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic imagery, but it is in fact prophecy of very real things to come. A real heaven and a real hell and a real eternity for every living soul. Those that have come before and those that will come after. Every person that has ever breathed the breath of life will experience an eternity and that will be either in a very real heaven or a very real hell. And if you think back to, further back to, to the end of last year, beginning in December, we spent several weeks looking at the very book that gives us those ideas of heaven and hell and, and all the things that, that we know that are still yet to come. And since we take all of that information from these scriptures, from the Bible, it, I have been very careful to proceed slowly and deliberately in order to lay out some proper foundation stones that we can build on. If we're taking truth from the Bible, from that, that sacred book, then we ought to come to a conclusion about what the Bible is and whether or not the Bible can or should be trusted. And I spent three or four weeks on that. Can we trust the Bible? Should we trust the Bible? We believe the Bible to be the infallible, immutable word of the living God. Amen. If you're one of those individuals who believes that the scriptures are up for radical interpretation, and that there are some parts that are accurate and that other parts that are not so much accurate, and, and then it would be difficult for you and me to have a discussion about things that are, 
are yet to come, things that have not been, been shown here in empirical, physical form. It'd be difficult for us to have that conversation because I may be taking the Bible as the authority and as the truth. I may be submitting my will and, and even my reason sometimes to what the Scripture says because I believe it is the Word of God and is the source of authority. But if you have the, the, the opinion that you can pick and choose and you can determine what is right and what is wrong and what is accurate and what isn't, then you have set yourself up as authority and we are not on the same ground. And so over the, the last three months, I've tried to very carefully and very deliberately lay out for you a sure and solid foundation that we have in the scriptures and the glorious and the perfect promise that we find in those scriptures about the things that are yet to come. Amen. Things that we have not yet laid eyes on, but that God has revealed to us in his scripture. If we can come to agreement on those things, namely that the Bible is true and accurate living word of God and that it is authoritative in all matters that it speaks about, we can agree that the Bible, uh, when the Bible talks about the things that are yet to come, the things that haven't happened yet but that are going to happen someday, that the Bible is speaking accurately and truthfully about those things, then what does that mean for us as we live out the lives that God has gifted us with here on earth? If those truths are true, and if we believe the Bible to be accurate, and what it says about heaven and hell and eternity, how does that, that impact us today? I mean, that's far off in the future, but he said, you don't know when it's going to happen, so get ready, right? We don't know. You don't, don't know what day, and he said, um, it could be at any time. What does that mean for us today? So from the time that I wake up in the morning until I lay my head down to rest, how should the reality of eternity, of heaven and hell, how, how should that impact all of my waking hours? I think the question to that, how should it, should it, should it even impact my waking hours? Should eternity have an impact on what I do, how I make decisions how I spend my money, how I use my time, how I interact with others, how I care for others. Should eternity have an impact on how I parent my children or how I love my wife, Amen. how I do my job? Yes. Should eternity have an impact on that? I, I think the profound answer is, is yes. It is certainly a, a profound yes. That's certainly what I would say. But don't take my word for it. We've got to go back to the book and see what the Bible has to say. Because what Jeff has to say at the end of the day doesn't really matter. And when you stand before him on that day and you look at him and he, he calls you to question about something that you did or some belief that you held, it's not going to matter a hill of beans when you say, yeah, but Pastor Jeff said that won't matter one iota. Because God who has spoken is standing in front of you and he will be saying, but what did I say? Amen. Amen. We exercise that in our own families with our own children Oh, but so-and-so said I could, yeah, but what did daddy say? I, I don't care what your teacher said. I don't care what your best friend said. What did your daddy say? And that, that we're going to face that reality. So don't take my word for it. We've got to look at the scripture. What, does the, what has God spoken about this subject? So yes, we need to look at the scriptures. What has God said? We must always, always, always go to the scriptures. And yes, I am talking about those times when someone comes up to you and says, Thus saith the Lord. You know, God told me to tell you, or God wants you to know. 
If it doesn't line up perfectly with what God has already said in his word, then God did not say it. I can promise you that. That's just somebody bringing you their own opinion. So if when someone comes to you and wants to tell you the word of God for your life, is it the word of God? He's already spoken it. He's not adding to it. He told the apostle John to close the book. All right? So what do we find that the Bible says about living life in light of eternity? If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have been working our way through 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. We just finished chapter 5 this past Wednesday, and let me tell you, if you are missing those Bible studies, then you are missing a great opportunity to dig into God's Word and to unpack the truth that He has for us. This is a great time of discussion that we have, and I, I just, I have come to love the discussions that we have and the discovery that we have. It's very informal. We just, we just take the word line by line, precept upon precept as it's written. We'll take apart the words and apart the sentences and, and see verse by verse and try to milk every ounce of meaning and truth that we can find in it. And so I can't encourage you enough to join us on our midweek Bible studies. I, I know the middle of the week is very busy for a lot of people. You all know that I, I, I work two jobs. I have a, a this and I have a full-time secular job that I work to feed my family. So I, I understand what busy is, especially during the middle of the week and having to do, do ministry on top of it. I work hard to get us out of here no later than 8 p.m., so we're only here for an hour. It's an hour of your time. I cannot, I cannot encourage you enough to come join us on Wednesdays. I mean, Sundays are wonderful, and I love Sunday service, but by nature, they're a bit more polished, and they're, uh, uh, you know, we want to do our best for God. They're a bit more you know, structured. Wednesday is just an informal time for us to really live in covenant with one another. And, and so we've been working through Corinthians, and anyway, that, that's my plug for Wednesday, and I'll just move on with the... The, the text. So we've been working through Corinthians. Here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. He says, do all to the glory of God. Now, I like to ask questions of the text. I like to take phrases and sections and ask questions, and then I go hunting for answers. I treat this like a treasure hunt. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl that was hidden in a field. It's like a treasure hunt. I, I want to go find the treasure. I find it helpful to ask questions, even when the answers appear to be right there, because it helps me to internalize. It helps me to rephrase or restate in a meaningful way the things that God has said in His Word. It's a really good way to get those scriptures into my heart and, and, and as I study them. So if I'm studying this verse... So whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If I'm studying this verse and I really want to unpack it and really dig deep into what Paul means here, I, I would see this phrase, do all to the glory of God, and I would ask some questions. I would stop and I would ask some questions. The first question I would ask was, what does he mean by do all? What does that mean? And I'd look for the immediate context. I want to look right around the phrase. And I want to look in the verses before and the verse after. And, and even in the chapter and the whole book. What are we talking about? I want immediate context. So we see right before, whatever you do, I mean, do all to the glory of God. He says, whatever you eat or drink. In this case, the answer is, is in the sentence, right? He answers it right before he even gives you the, the, the command, do all to the glory of God. He's explaining what he means by this. 
Whatever you eat or drink. So eating and drinking is included in this do all. What do you mean by do all, Paul? Well, Paul means for sure when you're eating and drinking. We know that because that's what he, what he said. Now, there's a reason that Paul is addressing eating and drinking. That's because he's talking to the Corinthian Christians. Now, you all know that Corinth is not part of Israel. Corinth is up in Greece, and it is a, a heathen area. They were not sons of God. They were not uh, trained in temple worship. They were pagans. They had their own uh, uh, religious structure and their own gods that they worshipped. These were godless people. They came into Christianity from religions that were based on idol worship. In fact, the whole culture that surrounded Corinth, that was in Corinth and all the other cities that they went and planted churches in, all the other pagan cities, the whole culture was surrounded and, and permeated by their, their religious uh, worship of idols. Just like in the Hebrew life and culture, in the Hebrew commerce even, their, their, their culture and their commerce was centered around temple worship of the God of Israel, Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. That permeated everything that they did. The temple was a center of commerce. There were shops all around the temple. That's where you went, to the center, the city center where the temple was, to do your buying and selling. The temples, the synagogues were the places of education and debate. That's where you went to get educated. And you, you, you learned about, about the life and about, about history and about, about science and all the stuff that they could teach. And it was all done from the context of their religious worldview. That God is God and God has brought us out of Egypt, right? So this, this is no different than it is in the, the pagan world. They have their idols that they worship, their gods, Baal and, and Chemoth and all those, Molech, all those other gods that they bowed to, that they worshiped, and their center of life was centered also around their temples of worship. This was the place of commerce. It was a cultural religion. So it was everywhere. And now you've got these Corinthians who have, who have abandoned their religion of idolatry and accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what is God's number one rule? Love the Lord your God with what? Everything you've got. Is there room for idol worship in there? This is why idol worship is a sin. This is why God abhors it so much. Because His greatest rule, His first rule, is love me with everything you've got. You can't share that with anybody else. I am the Lord God that created you. I am the Lord God that put life into you. You will worship me and me alone. Idol worship is, we don't have it. We're not going to have it. I'm not going to share, as, a, as Christ would say, as a husband would say, I'm not sharing my bride with someone else's bed. And so now these new Christians have come in and they've, they've been, their eyes have been opened through the teaching of Paul and through others about this, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful glory. This is the one true God. And all those other gods that you guys have been following, all the things that your culture is built around, that is a false lie. And it is, a, it is a, 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 an aberration to God. And He hates it. And so we don't want to have anything to do with it. Right? Amen. I'm a Christian now. And all that idol worship has to be put away because I'm a Christian now. And in Corinth, this presented a very big problem. Can you imagine why? It's a cultural religion they have. So if you went to the market to buy meat, right? Chances are that the meat that you purchased from the guy at the market had been sacrificed, killed, and butchered in such a way as to honor a foreign god. 
right? Let's say you need some pots for your kitchen, and you go into the, the pottery store, and you go looking at pots. Well, they've got some very nice pots, but guess what's on all of them? Decorations and images of foreign gods, Amen. idols, right? So in order to, to, to put that stuff away and say, I'm not having anything to do with that, these guys would have had to just leave Corinth. It was a religious culture of idolatry. It was embedded into their culture. And they couldn't come out of it lest they leave the city altogether. And if they leave the city altogether, then what witness can they be to those who are lost? That's why Paul says we are, not, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have to be separate from the world, but still be in the world so that we can reach the lost. And this is the problem that the Corinthians had. And so Paul begins to speaking about their freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. So guys, don't, so don't worry about it when you go to the market and you buy meat. If you go to someone's house and sit down to eat, they've invited you over, and you go sit down to eat, and they put food in front of you that's been altered, offered up to other gods, don't, don't worry about it. Now, if they make a big deal about it, oh, we give thanks to this other god. For the, if they make a big deal about it, then you politely decline because we don't want to besmirch the name of the Lord. We don't want people to look at us and think that, we're, that God doesn't matter to us. We don't want to be a stumbling block to others. But, but if you want to eat pork, go right ahead. All things were given to us. All things were given. That's what Paul says in the verses that are before. Everything was given to us for, to enjoy. Every good gift came from God. So you have freedom in Jesus Christ is what I'm saying. You, you can still live in this culture that is, that is dominated by this, this religious idolatry and you can still do it in such a way as to give glory to God. So don't, don't worry about the things that they put on your table. If you have to go buy meat. He said, eat it and be thankful for it. Amen. Be thankful for it. Eat it and be thankful. He said, you have freedom in Christ, but in exercising your freedom, do it in a way that glorifies God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of these things were made for our enjoyment. All things are legal, he says, but not all things build up. So when you exercise this freedom that you have in Jesus Christ, do it in a way that glorifies God. He says, eat what's put in front of you, but if you know that it's going to cause somebody to stumble, if you know this is going to cause somebody to stumble, then, then for their sake, don't eat it. For the sake of their souls and for the glory of God, what does he ask us to do? Deny our flesh. For the sake of their souls and for the glory of God, why don't you say no in those circumstances where it might cause somebody to stumble? You know, we have a pretty big stigma in this country around drinking alcohol. And, and, th and they're rightfully so, because people get caught into that trap. But you'll notice in Scripture, there's a lot of alcohol being consumed. A lot of wine being consumed, right? So I'm going to say something. You may, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. We can disagree on the non-essential things, okay? But I don't see any problem drinking alcohol. I have a big problem with drunkenness, all right? I don't partake, and the reason I don't partake is because of what Paul said, that if it causes my brother to stumble, I'll not have it. 
All right? So when I'm out at a, at a restaurant, I do not order a glass of wine with my meal. Because if someone sees me with a glass of wine with my meal, in this culture anyway, it would cause my brother to stumble. If you're in Germany, however, where they feed their children beer, it's just, that's just what they do. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Then there's, there's no cultural stigma with that. No one's going to stumble over that. Just don't get drunk. You can have your wine with your dinner. But here we can't do that because it, we have a stigma attached, a cultural stigma. This is why the Word of God is living and alive and applies to us wherever we're at. Paul said, I'm going to be all things to all people. Amen. So if I'm going to go to sit someone's house and they're going to offer me a glass of wine to drink, I'm not going to offend my host by saying, no, I can't have that, you unholy, wicked person. I am too holy to drink that. Paul, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and have that to be a good guest. Amen. But if, someone, if it would cause someone else to stumble... I'm going to politely decline. That's why in this call, we, again, we have a big stigma around, around consuming alcohol. So we don't, I don't do it. And I advise you not to because people look at you and they think, well, it questions your witness. Amen. Right? Amen. For, for no other reason than for, than for the sake of their souls and for the glory of God, deny yourself. That's what he says. Jesus said, you, you can't be my follower unless you take up your cross Deny your flesh and, and follow me. That is giving glory to God. I will do without because he is more precious. I want you to see that God is more glorious. I want you to see that he is, he is all in all. Somebody makes a big deal about this food that Paul's talking about being sacrificed to other gods, then politely decline. Not because it brings condemnation upon you, but because it would be a stumbling block to others. And those who are outside the church even might look at you and wonder about your God. We don't want them to wonder. We want them to be sure that our God is glorious. Amen. When you exercise your freedom in Christ, both in partaking and in declining to partake, do it with the glory of God as your aim, that God may be seen as great. He says, whatever you eat or drink, and then he says, or whatever you do. So he specifically addresses the problem of food. That was a big problem in the church in Corinth. They didn't know what to do with this. Whatever you eat or drink. And then he says, or whatever you do. So eating and drinking, and then basically anything else. Anything else that you do. Any freedom that you exercise. Any restraint or denial of the flesh that you exercise. Do it all for the glory of God. Amen. So do all means what it says. Everything we do. All of life. All of life for the glory of God. And then he says, it is to God's glory. So my next question is, what does it mean to do everything to the glory of God? What does it mean to eat to the glory of God and, and to sleep to the glory of God? What does it mean to sit and listen to the glory? What does it mean to go to work to the glory of God? To pump gas to the glory of God? Everything we do is to be done to the glory of God. What does it mean to do it to the glory of God? Essentially, Paul is saying, you are free to enjoy all the good gifts that God has given. You want to eat bacon? Have at it, buddy. Because God is good and bacon is good. And God made bacon, so eat bacon. And guess what? Be thankful. That's what he says. Be thankful. Eat it and be thankful to God. Lavish God with praise over bacon. I'm going to add, lavish God with praise over coffee. Praise the Lord for dark roast. And salted caramel. Mm. You want to eat fish? 
You want to eat shrimp? Oh, that was a no-no. You want to eat shrimp sautéed in butter and garlic? Have at it. Be thankful to God. Be joyfully thankful to God. Glorify Him. Make much of His good gifts because of His goodness. Make much of His good gifts by enjoying them fully. That's what Paul's saying. Enjoy creation. God put it here for us to enjoy. Enjoy it fully in His name, giving glory to Him, joyfully exalting Him for all that He has done. Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the rituals and all of the sacrifice. Christ is all in all. And we have great freedom because of that, church. We have great freedom. But he says, be careful. To whom much is given, much is required. You have been given great freedom, but there is great responsibility that comes in that. In exercising your great freedom, be careful because life isn't about you. When you sign on to this, this Christianity, when you sign on to faith in Jesus and you sign on to Him being your, your Lord and Savior, Amen. when you say yes to all that, there is a whole lot of things you're saying yes to in addition to that. Amen. You're saying yes to sacrifice. You're saying yes to service. You're saying yes to an others-oriented, others-focused life. The second and greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you sign on to be a child of God, you are signing on to love your neighbor as yourself. So in all of your exercise of freedom and of all of your exercise of, of doing what you want to do, it is not about satisfying your fleshly appetites. Amen. It's not about you and it never was. Maybe you thought it was about you until you came into the, the glorious revelation of who God is and who Jesus Christ is for you. Now all of a sudden you realize it's not about you at all. It's about him and his glorious throne and making his light shine before men. Amen. Amen. Keep yourselves in check. Enjoy your freedom in Christ so that you can still live in the culture that is dominated by idol worship. And don't we live in a culture that is dominated by idol worship? Everywhere you look, there's a corporate symbol on something. <clears throat> we are so consumed in consumerism, it has become our God. The national God. I mean, I love capitalism. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for that system of, of commerce. But the profit motive, it, it, it has become the God of our nation. And everything revolves around it. You can't do anything without sacrificing to the God of profit. And Paul says, you, you can't be out of the world. You, you can't be away from the world. We've got to be in the world. We have to be a witness and light to the world. So you have freedom in Christ. But in exercising your freedom, don't be a stumbling block to anyone. Make much of him in everything. In exercising freedom, indulge. In exercising freedom, restrain. All of life to the glory of God. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God. For the glory of God. And, and we must live all of life in light of eternity. If God's glory is what is on our, our hearts, if God's glory is what shapes our thoughts, what drives our motivations and our decisions, then eternity ought to be front and center. Amen. All of life in light of eternity. In Luke 
chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. And if I had an anchor text, this would be it for today. Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. Jesus is talking about being ready. He gives us a clear picture of how we should go about living in light of his second coming and our eternity in heaven. In verse 35, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like the man, the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So it says, stay dressed for action. The King James Version says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Be ready, be dressed and ready, stay ready. And be like the men who are waiting. Anticipate. Look forward to, be watchful for the master's return. This is our state of being, waiting, watchful, anticipation of a glorious return. This is how we are to live life every day, to the glory of God, waiting and watching and anticipating his return when we will spend eternity with him. Are you ready? Are you watchful? Do you eagerly anticipate? Let me ask you, if God were to come today, would you be like Lot's wife and be drawn back down to the things that you love more here on earth? Jesus said, be ready and be watchful. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that's the master, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at table and he will serve them. The master will serve the servants. The master will seat the servants at the table, the banquet table, the table of feasting, and he will dress himself for service, humble himself. The word become flesh. He will condescend to us and serve us. Those who are ready, the master will sit them at his table and we will feast at a meal he prepared, that he serves us. Jesus told another parable of his second coming in Luke chapter 17, Luke 17, 31. Jesus said, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life will keep it. The question that we come to from that text is, are you so anchored to this world that your anchors would keep you from being caught up with Christ at his second coming. And what is it? What does he talk about an anchor? You're on the roof and everything you own is in the house. You're out in the field. And the things that you love is back at the house. Who, what is it that you love? Maybe your family, your wife and children are back at the house. What did Jesus say about that? Unless a man hates his father and mother. Unless, unless you regard them so much lower than you regard me. 
If I come back and stand and you have to think twice about it, if I'm bringing you out of Sodom and Gomorrah and you, and you turn your back to look, just, just to glance, just to remember, you, you don't love me enough. And I can't be, you can't be with me because I'm a holy God. Holy does not mean he's like us. So much modern worship today bothers me. It's so self-centered. It makes God sound like me. God is like me. He ain't nothing like me. That's what holy means. It means separate, completely apart, different. God is holy. Three times holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is not like me at all. And thank God for that. It's altogether different. I'm not like him. I am made to be his image bearer. I'm made to, sh- to show how good he is, not how good I am. Are you so anchored to the world that when he calls, would you be anchored here? I think it's clear that God is calling us to live in anticipation of eternity with eagerness and urgency. Church, he is the soon and coming king. The soon and coming king. One day soon your eyes will behold his face. The face of the risen son of God. And in all his glory when he returns for his bride. Will you be watching? Will you be ready? Or will you be bound to the cares of today? That's why he tells us to cast our cares upon him. Not this world. Not this life. Not in things. But upon him. Cast our cares upon him. The Gospel of John gives us an account of the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus performed to confirm that he was the Christ. It's John chapter 2. Many of you know the story. There's a wedding at Cana that Jesus had been invited to, and they, they ran out of wine at the wedding. You know, back then, weddings lasted several days. They would feast for days. And they got towards the end of the wedding, and they, had, they ran out of wine. And, and Jesus' mother turned to Jesus, and he said, Son, they... They don't have any wine. And Jesus told her at the time, he said, look, you know, I don't know what you want me to do about it because my time hasn't come. But I think that Mary, even though this says this was the first miracle that Jesus had done, I think that Mary went back to the very beginning in her mind when the Spirit appeared to her and said, you're going to be, uh, uh, be, be with child and he's going to be the Son of God. They shall call his name Emmanuel. She knew this was some special, special baby. And even though he was grown, she knew he was a special boy. So she trusted him. And what she tell the servant? She said, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Look at verse 6. He says, now there were six water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them up for him to the brim. Now you all know that the water became wine. That's one of the most famous stories about Jesus in the Bible. He turned the water 
into wine. And, and the master of the house was so impressed with the quality of the wine that he, he said, you know, most people leave the wine for last because everyone's drunk their fill of it and they've already, you know, their senses have been dulled to, to what's good and what isn't. And so they leave the, the, the worst wine to the last. They serve the good wine first, but you have brought out the best wine last. You've saved the best for last. There's a message right there. I could preach all day on that one right there, that the best is saved for last. Every hope you have in this life, every desire you have in this life, everything you want in this life, every promotion you want, every relationship that you want, every comfort that you want, none of it compares. Every blessing you've received in this life, none of it compares. Every dollar you've ever made in this life, every, every sweet treat you've ever eaten in this life, nothing compares. Every love you've ever had in this life, nothing compares to what He has waiting for us. Amen. He saved the best for last. Yes. Do you live in anticipation of it? Are you excited about it? Do you look forward to it? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is, you've given me good gifts, and I'm so grateful for it. Come quickly, though. I can't wait to get on the other side. You've saved the best for last. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus had them fill the jars with water. And these aren't just any jars. Look at what it says. They were the jars for the Jewish rites of purification. So y'all remember in the law, everything, just everything was unclean it seemed. You know, they, they couldn't prepare food without it being contaminating themselves and, and being unclean. If they butchered an animal, the animal was now dead and they, they were unclean. They had to wash themselves. The washings all the time. Wash before they ate. Wash before they went to bed. Wash after they ate. They had to wash all the time. Look how many jars they had. Six jars, holding how much? 20 to 30 gallons apiece for one household. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water just for washing. Just to wash their hands with. That's a lot of washing. Everything made them unclean. And they had to wash consistently. It was a big deal. That's why the the, the Pharisees had a big problem with Jesus' disciples when they did not wash their hands before they ate. Why don't they wash? We have to wash. I mean, it's a, it's a cultural thing, a big deal. Six jars holding 30, 20 to 30 gallons apiece for nothing more than washing. This was to clean. This water was for cleansing, but it was not for drinking, right? It's to wash your hands in. It's to dip your, dip your water and you wash your hands. You wash the filth off the outside. You wa- it's not to consume, not to take inside. You wash the filth off of the outside. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? He said, you, you are like vessels that are clean on the outside, but you're dirty on the inside. You're like, you're like cups that have been washed on the outside, but you've neglected the inside. You haven't cleaned the inside of the bowl. You haven't cleaned the inside of the cup. Who wants to drink from that? So all this water for this purification was there. What, what good did it do? It washed the outside, but what was on the inside? I think this is fascinating. Jesus filled the jars that were made for washing and he turned it into wine to be taken not on the outside but on the inside. This water of purification has now become the wine of cleansing. Takes it in and now the inside of the vessel is clean. They didn't even realize what was going on. They had no clue. They had no clue. 
He had given them the wine of cleansing, the, the wine of purification to make the whole vessel clean from the inside to the outside. They didn't even realize it and they wouldn't know it until much later. He saved the best for last. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, John the Revelator is writing and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like a roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the mighty, almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her clothes to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus began his ministry at a wedding, preparing the wedding, making the, saving the best for last at a wedding, the wine of purification at a wedding. And we are invited at the end of days, in the final hour of glory, to live in eternity at a wedding. We will sit at the table in glory at the wedding of all ages and the bride of Christ will join her bridegroom. And look at what the church, what the church, the bride of Christ is going to be adorned with. In verse 8, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Church, we have to have an eternal outlook. Amen. Even now, at this hour, in this minute, in this second, you are fashioning for yourself a garment that you will wear in glory. Amen. Amen. Do you see that? You're preparing a wedding garment for yourself that you will wear at this great and glorious ceremony. All of your righteous deeds or the lack of them will adorn you. This is not come by accidentally, but on purpose, intentionally, deliberately living for the glory of God, living for our blessed hope, living for eternity, casting off the cares and the anchors of this world and fully embracing glory. Are you watching? And are you ready? Do you anticipate what's coming? Do you make decisions in light of eternity? Oh, there's a lot to say about that. I'm setting you up for something big. Amen. I just pray that you stay with me in the next few weeks. In the upper room, Jesus gathered with his disciples for one last meal. You all remember the Last Supper. Before he'd be taken to become the sacrificial lamb of all time. He began with wine at a wedding. We will celebrate and a wedding in eternity. And here in the middle, he says, this is what I did back at the wedding. Amen. So that you could be with me in the wedding. Amen. Amen. He gave them bread, which is the bread of fellowship. And he gave them wine, which is the wine of his new covenant. The wine of cleansing. And he said, eat this. And drink this in remembrance of all that I have done for you. Amen. Amen. Eat this and drink this in remembrance of me. Church, I tell you today that we look back in remembrance. We look back to the past. 
so that we can clearly see and remember our future and what is waiting for us in glory. Our soon and coming King. Church, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All of life to the glory of God. If you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I beg you, please do not wait another minute. And you may be sitting here and you may have been coming to this church or to church period for many, many years and still not know this Christ as your Savior. Only you can know that. And I beg you, do not wait another minute. Talk to someone near you. Let us know. We would love to show you the glory that we have found in Jesus Christ. Tell them that you want this same blessed hope that we all have. And church, I'm telling you, if you are living life as if your eternity is not imminently upon you, if you are living life as if that is some far off thing and it doesn't matter, it doesn't have any weight on how I, how I comport my life, how I make my decisions, how I spend my money, how I react to my wife, how I treat my kids, how I do my job. If you're acting like that's some far away, distant thing, I beg you to change your perspective. Amen. Amen. Remember your future. And looking back to the past through the sacrament of Holy Communion, remember your future that God has prepared for you and that He is coming like a thief in the night. And those who are waiting, who are ready for him, he will sit at his table Uh and he will serve them, eagerly waiting for his coming. So you heard me tell you about when they were in the upper room, Jesus gave them the bread, and this is the bread of fellowship. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this in remembrance of what I have purchased for you. All of that freedom that we talked about just a few minutes ago, That's what he bought for us. And the restraint is what he bought for us. All of life to the glory of God is what he purchased for us. We owe him our all. We break this bread in remembrance that he was broken so that we don't have to be. He was broken so that we don't have to be. Praise God. And this cup... He said, this is the blood of my new covenant that is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because of what this cup represents, church, we can stand before God sanctified, justified. We can stand before God not clothed in our own righteousness because it is filthy rags, but he poured his blood out for us so that we could stand before him righteous in the robes of his own son, Jesus When they announce my name in heaven, when I walk into the throne room in my prayers and I go before God in prayer, the angels in heaven don't announce, hey, Jeff's here. They say, hey, God, your son's here. I'm wearing his robe and he gave me his crown. And one day it'll be my joy to cast them back at his feet. Hallelujah. All things to the glory of God. All of life to the glory of God. Father God, we thank you for this this holy sacrament that you have given us to remember who you are and what you have done for us in your mighty work on the cross and what you continue to do for us in your mighty work of sanctifying us and giving us the mind of Christ day by day. I ask you humbly, Lord God, to bless these elements, Lord, that they may be for us the body of Christ and the blood of Christ so that we can be for all the world the body and blood of Christ to shine for them your light and your glory, salt of the earth, light of the world. 
world. Let us be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.